Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist News Flash. Hello and welcome to the Naked Scientist's News Flash, where we take a weekly look at what's hot in the world of science. This week's episode features Chris Smith, Helen Scales, Mira Senthalingam and Sarah Caster-Perry, and I'm Ben Valsler. Coming up, how stimulating the spinal cord could offer benefits to sufferers of Parkinson's disease. This is a very effective way to turn an animal model from an intense state of Parkinsonism into more freely moving animals. This is definitely worth a clinical trial. Why frankincense could be a sweet-smelling treatment for bladder cancer. So it seems that really frankincense is, is singling out those cancer cells and stopping them from dividing and, and proliferating into a tumour and then also killing them off as well, which is brilliant. And Sarah Castor-Perry joins us to explain how this week in science history saw the discovery of the gene responsible for Huntington's disease. That's all on the way. This week, scientists have made a breakthrough in the treatment of Parkinson's disease. Parkinson's disease is a neurodegenerative brain condition. It's quite common, and people who have it complain of tremors, but more noticeably and more of a problem to them is the fact that their movements are very hard to get going. They know what they want to do, but they just can't make the movements start happening. And also, when they do get movements going, sometimes they're much slower and smaller than they would like. Scientists have tried treating the condition in various ways, and it occurs because the brain ends up with too little of a chemical called dopamine, which is produced by one class of nerve cells in the brain. And one way to treat the condition is with a drug called L-DOPA. L-DOPA is an amino acid which is used to make dopamine in the brain, so giving more of it means the brain then increases the amount of dopamine it has, and this can alleviate the symptoms. The problem is that in the long term, it's also associated with the development of quite severe side effects. People get what's called the on-off effect. They can freeze up, they can also get too much movement, and it can also produce nasty hallucinations and other side effects like sickness. So it's not exactly an ideal treatment. At the same time, researchers have also looked into whether we could stimulate the brain electrically to try to alleviate some of the symptoms, and that's been a quite a successful field of research for a while now. Electrodes are implanted deep in the brain's motor circuits. When you stimulate those circuits, then movements can be made more easily. The problem is that kind of surgery is dangerous. It's also not very easy. So researchers are now looking for alternatives, and this is the work of Miguel Nicolelis, who's a researcher at Duke University in America. He and his colleagues have got a paper in the journal Science this week, and what they've done is to instead stimulate the spinal cord, and specifically they've stimulated a part of the spinal cord called the dorsal columns, which are the main nerve sensory pathways carrying information from the body up towards the brain. Now, the insights that led them to try this in experimental animals were that when you study the brainwaves of people and animals with forms of Parkinson's disease, the brainwaves aren't normal. What you see are synchronous patterns of almost erratic firing of nerve cells, almost coming in waves. It's as though you've got an engine that's running badly. And what they wondered was whether this could be linked to the failure of the brain's motor areas to initiate movements correctly. And by stimulating the sensory pathways, what they've now found is that this sensory information coming in from the stimulator seems to desynchronize these abnormal brain firing patterns, and it means that the brain activity returns to a more normal pattern resembling a brain that's being used to make movements. And when they do this in experimental animals, the animals show very few side effects except that they are 26 times more spontaneously active than animals that don't have a stimulator turned on. So the researchers are saying... 
This is a very effective way to turn an animal model from an intense state of Parkinsonism into more freely moving animals. This is definitely worth a clinical trial. And it is an important disease. It's very debilitating for the people who suffer from it. And because this is so simple to do, relatively speaking, it looks like it could be very promising in the future. I'm pleased to hear it. It is definitely a debilitating disease, and it's nice when these sorts of things come through. Now, this week, the health benefits of eating the omega-3 amino acids found in fish may not outweigh the cost to the oceans of our continued fishing, according to an analysis in the Canadian Medical Association journal this week. Dr David Jenkins argues that although some studies do show that eating fish rich in omega-3 oils can prevent heart disease and other chronic illnesses, the evidence is not really hugely convincing compared to the evidence for the dramatic falls in fish stocks worldwide. Looking at the results from many individual studies along with some meta-analyses, and these themselves take lots and lots of studies into account, they found that there is a suggestion that higher omega-3 consumption could lead to a 15% benefit in the prevention of cardiovascular disease. That's good. Some of the studies they looked at found benefits in only a few situations, though, and follow-up studies occasionally showed that the benefit had actually reversed three years later. In contrast, the evidence for falling fish stocks and collapsing populations is as compelling as it is frightening. Fish catches have not increased since the 1990s, despite increased fishing effort, and the percentage of collapsed stocks has actually been increasing exponentially since the 1950s. There are also socio-economic factors to consider, such as the fact that a collapsed fishery in the United States or in Europe or Japan will mean that we have to rely on importing fish from developing countries. Now, this means that these countries then either have to allow our foreign fishing fleets into their waters or they have to export their fish to our markets. And this deprives local communities of an important source of protein. Food security is just one of the many contributing factors to political and social instability. And these countries would then face nutritional and health challenges. So maybe we could farm fish. But even that isn't a very good solution. To farm salmon, bluefin tuna or sea bass, you need to feed them a high-protein diet of fish meal and fish oils. And ironically, farming fish puts even more pressure on wild fish stocks. And it actually takes between 2.5 and 5 kilograms of feed fish for every 1 kilogram of farmed fish produced. There is a potential solution, though. Bacteria, genetically modified yeasts or plants, may be able to supply our omega-3 needs. But they haven't been properly investigated yet, so we don't know what doses of this would be healthy, and they can't yet supply our demand. They conclude their report by saying, until renewable sources of long-chain omega-3 fatty acids become more generally available, it would seem responsible to refrain from advocating to people in developed countries that they increase their intake of long-chain omega-3 fatty acids through fish consumption. So that's food for thought. So are we all destined to stay thick then? (laughs) possibly but they do say that even the evidence for it making us cleverer although it is reasonably strong it's nowhere near as strong as totally outweighed by the evidence of the damage that we're doing to the oceans and so it really is a case of compromising working out how best we can get this without doing the damage well here's a bit of research that's a cut above the rest or maybe a way of repairing that cut above the rest. Uh, Roger Narayan is a researcher at the University of North Carolina, and he and his colleagues have been looking at how we can suture people up or stitch people up. I didn't like to put it like that, but that's what they're looking at in the future. 
And one promising avenue is the use of a natural protein which you find in mussels, not the mussels that are your biceps. These are the mussels that live on the seabed and on jetties. If you've ever tried to pull them off of a rock or the jetty, you know just how tightly they're attached, and that's because they make a cocktail of proteins which are one of nature's most powerful glues. And because it's a natural product, it should go very well in the human body in the sense that it should be biodegradable. Because when surgeons stitch people up, you're using usually things that are not natural products or things that are foreign bodies at the very least. And these can get infected. And this can also mean that wounds then don't heal properly. At the same time, if you put foreign bodies into a wound, some people can also have allergic reactions to them. So researchers are looking for better ways to get cleaner healing of incisions and what these researchers have done is to ask well how should we put these proteins into a wound how best to deploy them and they found the answer could be the head of an inkjet printer so what Roger Narayan and his colleagues have done is to make various cocktails of these proteins extracted from blue mussels which grow in the water And they put them with iron ions because this seems to make the proteins much stickier in the right combination if you mix them with a bit of iron. And by spraying them out of an inkjet printer head, and the way that works is that there's a tiny piezoelectric crystal inside and when you apply current to the piezoelectric crystal, it vibrates. And the vibration causes the head to spit out tiny droplets of this glue. You can then paint onto a surface just the right amount of glue for it to then become very, very sticky and heal things. And I, so I asked Roger, well, you can't really feed someone into an inkjet printer, can you? So how do you see this being used? And his argument is, well, the heads are very portable. So we could in the future see a Star Trek-like effect where you have this print head handheld device which basically squirts the glue into a wound and you then hold the edges together. It sets and then you've got something which will break down naturally. It will have very low allergenicity. It's not like super glue, which people have used in the past and is toxic. So it's much better all around. That sounds fantastic, as long as you can get the right printer drivers to work with Windows Vista, which (laughs) seems to be a problem I've had recently. But as it's a protein, how do we avoid our immune system responding to it? Well, that's the question because it hasn't been tried yet. And the big thing is to say, well, let's try it. You can definitely get away with using it once. On the other hand, it might be possible to make sure that you use cocktails of these things that don't elicit an immune response. But until we try, we're not going to know. Excellent. Also this week, some new software can identify a tiger from its pelt, which will help to catch poachers out in the act. A tiger's stripes are unique, very much like our own fingerprints. Now, this means that an individual tiger can be identified from its colouring and patterns. Lex Hybe from Conservation Research Limited has developed a software system that uses images taken by camera traps and stitches photos together to build a three-dimensional map of the markings. And this goes all the way from the neck to the base of the tail. This map can not only let us identify individual animals in the wild, so from other photos taken by camera traps, and this will help us to get accurate population numbers, but also you can flatten this map out and use it to identify skins that are traded on the black market. This, of course, has the added benefit of knowing where and roughly since when the tiger was killed, which will help to trap poachers in the act. It's also a very accurate technique. From a collection of between 264 and 298 tigers, the software correctly matched 95% of images that belonged to the same animal. The idea behind this, using pattern recognition to identify individual animals, has been used for several different species, such as grey seals, cheetahs, penguins and whale sharks. And the beauty of this sort of pattern recognition is that you don't need all your photos to be uniform. In fact, tourist photos have been used alongside those taken by researchers to show that numbers of whale sharks have actually increased by 1.7% over the last 12 years. That's according to Jason Holmberg of the research organisation Ecosian. 
Hybe is confident that this software could make the backbone of a central database, as he writes in this week's Biology Letters Journal. He said, an image of a skin that has been taken from one of the tigers in that database could be traced within a few minutes to where and when the living animal was last recorded. It's a simple software solution to help the fight to protect this endangered species. Fight against poachers. Um, It's interesting because there was a similar thing done with DNA in ivory and researchers built up a DNA map of all of the elephants around Africa so they could then take a piece of ivory, ask someone its provenance and if their story didn't fit what the DNA said in terms of where it must have come from geographically they knew it was probably going to be illicit and so they were able to then take them on and say well you know how do you account for this? Okay, and we could, of course, do exactly the same thing with tigers, find out whereabouts these are coming from and where they're being sold. And this way, hopefully, we can stop this really quite dangerous market. Thank you, Ben. Well, also this week, the European Space Agency has launched the Gravity Field and Steady State Ocean Circulation Explorer satellite, which is why we call it GOCE, G-O-C-E for short. And they say it's going to bring about a whole new level of understanding of one of the Earth's most fundamental forces of nature, and that's our gravitational field. Well, Dr Chris Hughes is from the Proudman Oceanographic Lab. He's down here on Earth with us, thankfully, and he's planning to use the data from GOCE to better understand what's going on in the world's oceans. He's with us now. Hello, Chris. Hello. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. Tell us, uh, what actually is GOCE? How does it work, first of all? Well, if you imagine having uh, six metal cubes in a box in orbit around the Earth. Because they're all in slightly different places, they're feeling slightly different bits of the the gravitational field, so they will move differently. Ideally, what you would want to do is just track them and measure the relative motion. That tells you about how the gravity field is changed from one place to another. You can't do that because they'd rattle around and bounce off the walls. So instead, you hold them still and measure the force that you need to hold them still. And what sort of orbit is this satellite in? Is it going over the poles, so the Earth is effectively turning under it, and this means that it can effectively, over the course of a, a one-month period, scan the entire of Earth's surface? Yes, that's right. It's not quite over the poles. It's about 60 degrees off, but it covers almost all the Earth, yes. Why is this useful to you as an oceanographer? What can we learn by studying the Earth's gravitational field? Well, we want to know what the ocean currents are doing, and we can learn an awful lot about those from sea levels whether the sea surface is sloping or not. It's rather like isobars on a weather map tell you which way the wind is blowing. The sea level tells you which way the currents are going. Now, if you want to know whether the sea is sloped, you need to know which way is up. And we know it pretty well, obviously, but we don't know it well enough. We're talking about very, very small gradients. One in a million is the gradient that matters. So you need to know very precisely what the gravitational field is in order to define the direction of up But given that the Earth is a sphere, Chris, why don't we just see gravity being uniform everywhere across the Earth's surface? Well, because the Earth isn't quite a sphere. Every mountain, every bump, every different mass around the Earth has its own bit of gravitational attraction towards it. So if you actually look at the uh, the shape of the sea surface, what you see is a whole set of wrinkles and bumps. It really looks like a map of the sea floor because every mountain on the seafloor is pulling the water towards it. So what you think of as a nice, smooth, round sphere is actually quite wrinkly and bumpy when you look on the very small scales. And an understanding of these currents, how will this inform us about what's going on in the oceans? Well, the ocean is almost half of the climate system. It carries heat around from equator to pole in just the way that the, the atmosphere does. And it keeps parts of the Earth warm, cools other parts, and it's very important for things like fisheries, but also climate in Europe in particular. Now, 
is very difficult to measure. There's so much going on in the ocean. It tends all to happen on smaller scales than it does in the atmosphere. And there are fewer measurements. It's harder to see into. We can't measure much in the ocean from satellite. These measurements of currents are really going to give us a huge amount of new information about the basic patterns of flow in, in the ocean that allows us to understand how the heat gets transported around. And just to finish off, Chris, how long is the, the acquisition of the data going to take? How long before you can come back on this programme and tell us this is what we found? Oh, it's going to be at least a year. It's going to take six months or so before the whole system is calibrated and has gone down to its operational orbit and is taking measurements. And then there's a lot of work once the data has been collected, turning that into useful information that we can calculate the sea level relative to the gravitational field. So there may be some early results somewhere around Christmas time, but it's going to be many years down the line before we've got really perfect observations, the best we can get out of it. Well, we wish you luck with it. Thank you very much. That was uh, Chris Hughes, who's from the Proudman Oceanographic Lab, telling us about GOCHE, which is the Gravity Field and Steady State Ocean Circulation Explorer. Read the references and find out the facts. All our programmes are archived in text and audio on our website at nakedscientists.com. In this week's Naked Scientists in Africa show, Helen Scales joined Mirosanthalingam with news of the discovery of a new miniature dinosaur and how frankincense could be important for more than just smelling sweet. Yes, for thousands of years we've been using frankincense all around the world as um, incense and as perfumes and of course the Bible tells us that it was one of the gifts that the wise men brought to Jesus. But now there might be a new use for frankincense and that's to treat cancer of the bladder which is a really deadly form of the disease. In the US it's the fourth most common type of cancer in men and it's the seventh most common cause of death amongst British men. And now a team of researchers from the University of Oklahoma Health Sciences Centre and Oklahoma City VA Medical Centre in the United States have published a study on frankincense in the open access journal BMC Complementary and Alternative Medicine. Now various other studies in the past have pinpointed the anti-inflammatory, antibiotic and antifungal properties of frankincense as well as its use in combating various other types of cancer cells. But here the team have added frankincense oil to human bladder cells and normal bladder cells in petri dishes in the laboratory and they found that frankincense singled out the cancer cells and killed them. Do they know how the frankincense is having this effect? Well, yes, they actually went and identified various genes that were switched on by the frankincense oil so that they became more abundant when the frankincense was put onto the cells and um, some other genes that were switched off. And it was among those ones that are switched on uh, were genes that we already know stop tumour cells from dividing and growing and some other genes that also promote the cell death in cancer cells through several different pathways. So it seems that really frankincense is, is singling out those cancer cells and stopping them from dividing and, and proliferating into a tumour and then also killing them off as well, which is brilliant. Now, where does this frankincense come from and are we going to see this actually used as a treatment for bladder cancer? Well, frankincense comes from the resin of various different species of tree called Boswellia, and that includes uh, species that are native to India, China, Somalia, and across the coast of East Africa. Uh, and to harvest it, tree bark is cut, and the white milk-like gum oozes out, and then when it hardens, it turns a sort of orangey-brown colour, and that's frankincense. And the oil is made by steam distillation of that resin. Now, this is the first evidence that frankincense is effective against bladder cancer cells in particular, so it is 
still early days. More tests are needed on other human cancer cell lines, and scientists will need to make sure that there aren't any other unwanted side effects from the oil. But I'd say it's certainly really encouraging that this could point the way to future treatments, an alternative therapy perhaps, for people who are suffering from this really terrible form of cancer. Now, finally this week, a mini dinosaur's been found. Yes, a new species. It sounds rather cute, doesn't it? A miniature meat-eating dinosaur has been discovered, and it's the smallest one that's ever been found in North America. Hesperonychus elizabethae is its name, and it was half the size of a modern-day house cat. And it ran around on two legs, hunting for insects and other small animals, like frogs and mammals, and it might even have eaten baby dinosaurs. Well, this is the discovery of two Canadian paleontologists, Nick Longrich from the University of Calgary and Philip Curry from the University of Alberta, and that's in their study published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. So what did these mini dinosaurs look like? They apparently looked a little bit like velociraptors, or miniature versions of velociraptors and those were the guys that were made famous in the movie Jurassic Park um, but they're quite a bit smaller than that um, their name Hesperonychus means western claw because they had razor sharp sickle shaped claws on the end of their second toe they were apparently about 50 centimetres tall they had a thin slender head and dagger like teeth they sound quite ferocious <laughs> and they lived in marshes and swamps that covered parts of Canada during the Cretaceous period which ranged between 145 and 65 million years ago so did they only recently find these fossils? well actually they were originally collected in 1982 and the most important specimen was a pelvis bone collected by the well-known Canadian paleontologist Elizabeth Nichols and she died in 2004 but it was after her that the, the dinosaur was named. But the bones remained in storage and really unstudied until Lonrich came across them in 2007. But how did the paleontologists know that these bones came from an adult instead of young dinosaurs that hadn't fully grown yet? Well, um, originally they thought that these were the claws of young dinosaurs, but then when they found this pelvis bone and looked at it carefully, they found that the hip bones were fused. And that's something that only happens later in life once the animal is fully grown. Well, it turns out actually that these small carnivores were actually quite common. And it's a discovery that unveils just how, for the last hundred years, paleontologists have been missing a really important part of the ancient ecosystem that used to roam around in North America and it raises the possibility that there could be even smaller meat eaters out there waiting to be found. Thanks Helen. Naked scientist Helen Scales reporting there on some of the latest scientific news from around the globe. The Naked Scientist News Flash. Reacting to the world's best science. And finally this week, Sarah Custer-Perry joins us to explain the groundbreaking science that occurred this week in science history. This week in science history saw, in 1993, the discovery by a team in America of the single gene involved in Huntington's disease, a neurodegenerative disorder that causes characteristic jerky movements, loss of memory and muscle control. It's rare, affecting only 7 in 100,000 people, compared to one in three for cancer, but it is more common than some other genetic diseases, such as achondroplasia or dwarfism, that affects only four in 100,000 people. Huntington's was one of the first genetic diseases to have its gene sequence mapped, following the sequencing of the gene for cystic fibrosis in 1989. Gene sequencing began in the 1970s, working on viruses, particularly ones called bacteriophages, that attack bacteria. By 1991, when the Human Genome Project began, its aim to sequence the entire human genome, sequencing was accurate but still relatively slow. But first, a short introduction to the genetics of Huntingdon's. Humans have all their DNA arranged in 23 pairs of chromosomes, 
one pair of which is the sex chromosomes, the X and Y that determine what gender you are. The group, led by Marcy MacDonald from Harvard, found that the Huntingdon's gene was located on chromosome 4. The gene itself codes for a protein called Huntington, which is essential for brain development and helps to produce a chemical that encourages nerve cell growth. Proteins are made up of amino acids, and DNA contains the information on which amino acids to put into which order for every protein in our bodies. This order is determined by combinations of the bases, adenine, thymine, cytosine and guanine, or A, T, C and G. Each amino acid is coded for by three of these bases. For example, GGA codes for glycine. At one end of the Huntington gene, there are several repeats of the bases CAG, which leads to a chain of glutamines on the end of the Huntington protein. In people with the normal copy of the gene, there can be up to 36 of these CAG repeats, but in those with the mutant form, there can be as many as 70 or more. When there are this many glutamines on the end of the protein, it changes shape and can no longer perform its job properly, meaning that the nerve cells in the brain that rely on it to make and maintain new connections with each other can degenerate and die, especially in the areas controlling movement, causing the movements that give the disease its other name of Huntington's career. The group also found that the number of repeats determined when in life the disease would start, between 36 to 45 repeats, and you might never realise you had it, as it would be starting so late in life you would probably die of something else first. With over 45 repeats, the disease usually manifests in your 40s, and with over 70 repeats, juvenile HD develops, with all the symptoms appearing in the teens or 20s and progressing rapidly, leading to early death. Since this paper was published, genetic sequencing has come on in leaps and bounds, with the Human Genome Project completed ahead of schedule in 2003. Many other genetic disorders have also been sequenced. This allows for testing methods to be developed, for adults and for pregnant women who may want to terminate a pregnancy if the child would have a genetic disease. In the developing fields of gene therapy and RNAi, it also allows affected genes to be pinpointed and targeted for therapy and treatment. In the future, it may be that we can treat all genetic diseases, with these early discoveries providing the beginnings of an important series of breakthroughs. That was Sarah Custer-Perry, and that's all we have for this week's Naked Scientist Newsflash. This week featured Chris Smith, Helen Scales, Mira Senthalingam and Sarah Custer-Perry, along with our guest, Dr Chris Hughes. The Naked Scientist Newsflash is produced by me, Ben Valsler. If you enjoyed the Newsflash, then why not check out the Naked Scientist podcast, where every week we bring you the latest in science news, along with interviews, answers to your questions and a kitchen science experiment to try out at home. Join us on the web at thenakedscientists.com and we'll be back with another roundup next week. The Naked Scientist News Flash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.